And if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians and chapter 1. So we come to the end of chapter 1 this morning in our sermon. Verse 27. This is the Word of God. Please listen carefully and take heed how you hear, for with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off but the Word of God endures forever. So, in our text this morning, Paul is concerned that you and I live a worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel. Now, I learned a little bit this week studying the word worthy in Greek and what it means. It actually comes from the marketplace, and it means literally a weight sufficient enough to move the scales. So, you think about it in a marketplace, maybe you go to the market to buy a pound of flour or a pound of rice, and the the, the seller puts the pound of rice onto the scales on one side. It's a lever, of course, and the scale goes down. And then on the other side of the scale, he starts putting on weights. He starts with a quarter-pound weight. But a quarter-pound weight isn't worthy enough to move the pound. Another quarter-pound, still no movement. Another quarter-pound, still no movement. Then he puts the fourth quarter-pound on, which equals a pound, and the, and the scale moves and and we have a weight finally that's worthy enough to balance the scales. Well, Paul isn't measuring flour, and he's not measuring rice this morning. He's measuring the gospel of Jesus Christ and a life worthy of the gospel. So, think about that in your mind's eye. On one side of the scale, Paul puts the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was in the beginning with His Father, in whom there is life life eternal. He's the one who, um, whose voice shattered the deep silence of eternity before creation and said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the one who left the glories of heaven and came down for you and became flesh for you and became weak for you. He's the one who lived a life of perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience for you, obeying all of God's commandments in thought, word, and deed, never a flicker of disobedience his whole life long. And at the end of his life, he died for you, not just death, but death in all of its horror, the death of the wicked damned, who was cast out of God's presence and abandoned to the blackness of darkness forever. Those hours of darkness on the cross 
had the weight of eternal hell in them, which Christ as God the Son was able to carry eternal hell in a few hours upon the cross because of the infinite worth of His person. He didn't just suffer the highlight reel of hell, like someone watching a soccer game on YouTube for, you know, the highlights, not even the extended highlights, but He watched and experienced eternal hell in those hours of darkness upon the cross. And through His death, He conquered death for you, rising again the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high for you, ruling heaven and earth for you, for His Father's glory and for your good. This is the person He puts on one side of the scale. And then He puts the gospel there with Him, the gospel offer that's been given to you, an offer of free, final, and forever forgiveness, that all of your sins, past, present, and future, banished, forgiven. Every wrong thought you've ever had, every wrong word you've ever uttered, every wrong thing you've ever done, forgiven, wiped out. More than that, His resurrection power doesn't just give you forgiveness, it gives you power, power to say no to sin, breaks the power of canceled sin, and sets you free. More than that, on the one side of the scale, Paul puts the adoption papers. You come to the gospel, a bastard child of hell, illegitimate, worthless child of hell. You leave the gospel, a fully adopted child of heaven, as loved as Christ is loved sharing the the Son's glory, sharing the Son's place in the Father's heart, sharing even the Son's throne. If you suffer with me, Christ says, you will reign with me. All of it's shared with you. And He puts all of that in the gospel on one side of the scale, and the scale crashes down, almost crushed beneath the limitless weight of the gospel. And then on the other side of the scale, Paul puts the life that you and I must live, not to earn the gospel, but to live a life worthy of such a gospel. What's that look like? What does such a worthy life look like? Well, Paul says three things, and they're in this text. The church lives a worthy life when we stand together, stand fast in gospel unity. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're living such a worthy life. What's that look like? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? A church standing fast in gospel unity. Secondly, a church standing fast in gospel bravery not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And lastly, a church standing fast in gospel clarity. When you suffer for the gospel, you've got to understand why you're suffering for the gospel. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, that's a gift, but also suffer for Him. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. So, let's begin at the beginning. A worthy life consists in a church standing fast in gospel 
unity. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one mind, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, what's Paul mean, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? And there are two obvious alternatives, right? One, Paul could be saying that we're to stand fast, striving together to get others to believe the gospel, to spread the faith, and to get people to engage in faith. So, you could be using faith there in terms of the activity of trusting Christ. We want to be engaged in evangelism. That's possible. A more likely option, I think, is a second option, and that is that the church should strive together to guard the objective doctrinal content of the faith of the gospel. Now, John Stott thinks it's both. I prefer the latter. I think when Paul uses the term the faith, he tends to mean the objective doctrinal content of the actual gospel we believe, right? So, for example, that's all over the place in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, it's the lead with character verse. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Not in faith, but in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Galatians 1.23, describing the church's amazement that he, Paul, who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith. He's preaching the faith, the whole content of the Christian message, the faith. 1 Timothy 3 verse 9, Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith. They must hold the doctrinal content of the faith with a clean conscience. 1 Timothy 4 verse 6, if you put, sorry, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, if you, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, not just the act of believing, but the actual Christian faith devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They're leaving the truth of the faith for the lies of demonic testimony. Contrast. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. Not the words of faith, but the words of the faith. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Not just, not just I've kept on believing, but I've actually kept the doctrinal content of the faith, the Christian faith, entrusted to me. So, Paul wants the church to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. To do that, these are militant words, right? These are, these, are, these, are, these are militant words. Can we all agree to do that? You have to love the gospel. Not just to know it, not just to agree with it, but it's got to call forth your love. It's got to command your deepest passion and concern. Does it? Do you have in your soul for the faith of the gospel? A here I stand, I can do no other commitment.
Do you? I was listening recently in an examination of a, of a candidate for gospel ministry, and he's a good man, and I really believe he's a good man. The man's got a brain the size of a small South American country. Huge, I mean, amazing, genius scholar. He was quoting from memory, not just lines, but whole paragraphs of the Westminster Confession of Faith. His, his, his examination was in um, a time there was more Latin in his, in his, in his presentation than English. It was impressive. Um, and I, I love the man. I believe he's a good man. But he has this kind of… He, he, I'm using him with an illustration. There's sometimes you can have guys, and it's all in their head, right? But is, is, does it grip their heart? At the end of the examination, yes, it was so, I, just, I asked him the question, do you love Jesus, son? And he goes, yeah, I do. I said, why do you love Jesus? He said, oh, because he, he died in my place and for my sins. And I could see there was a heart there. And I encouraged him when he's preaching, it's got to come from your heart, son, if it's going to reach to the hearts of you hearers. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the gospel? Is it, it, is it the rallying point? Like, it's like whenever, you know, in, in, the, in the movie The Patriot, whenever the, the British forces are to turn the lines in the fast, and the last climactic battle, and Mel Gibson picks up the stars and stripes. And it's the rallying, and there all the American soldiers are running this way, and Mel Gibson runs the other way with the flag. He starts waving it, remember, at the top of the hill, and it's the rallying point for everyone to come back. What is the rallying point of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the gospel of Christ's love for us. And God help us if ever we lose that as the rallying point of this church. And it can happen so easily. The devil will fight tooth and nail to make something else the the rallying point. Churches lose it, they turn aside to politics, and they get engaged in politics. Not an unimportant thing. Who runs this country is important, right? But it's not, not nearly as important as the gospel. Or political activism, like the pro-life cause. Some of you are involved in the pro-life cause. I praise God for you. It's a wonderful thing. It's a vital thing. But it'll never be the central thing in this church. As important as the lives of the unborn are, the life of the soul is even more important, and only the gospel can provide that. It's the rallying point of this church. Other churches will will turn aside to the social gospel. Now, that's the fruit of the gospel. We should be concerned about injustice, right? But the church does not exist to solve the problem of financial injustice, racial injustice, human injustice. The church exists because of the problem of divine justice. We don't preach because men are getting what they don't deserve from other human beings. It's a terrible thing. No, we preach because the great danger you and I face is that we will get what we do deserve from Almighty God. And when churches get caught up in social justice, the the gospel, the blood gospel, is pushed off the edge of the pulpit and falls on the floor and is forgotten. And another message takes, takes center stage, another message that has no power to give life to a person's soul. And by the grace of God, that'll never happen here while I have breath in my body. Pray for me.
Not just others, other gospels, though, that can distract the church, but the church, but the, but the, the, the devil can use corrupt people living and ministering even with corrupt motives, like these men. And, you know, Paul's a great example to us. These men proclaiming Christ, and they're proclaiming Christ to stab Paul in the back. How easy for Paul, if he was concerned about himself, how easy for Paul to get bent out of shape. They're trying to hurt me in my imprisonment, and they are. And yet Paul, he's standing firm with one mind, not about the pain they're causing me. He's concerned about the gospel, he says. Remember what he said? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's the gospel. I don't care about myself, Paul says. It's the gospel. Sometimes the devil will use um, stupid conflict in the church, people fighting over what they want, Maybe the kind of music they want, or the kind of ministry focuses they want, or their pet projects they want, they want, and they want. It's all about me and what they want. And in their mind, it's, it's about the gospel, but in their heart of hearts, it's what they want. And it, 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 takes this, it, 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 it robs them of the peace of the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel, and the joy in the gospel. Possibly each of you not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You can't hold fast to the word of life if you're holding fast to your hurty feelings and your bitter heart and why what you want isn't happening in life can rob you of the, your joy. Chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about the false gospel of circumcision, the legalism that can creep into the church. People who are full of themselves, what they bring to the table, the way Paul used to be, I myself, he said, used to have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And that can be a danger for us. You, know, you, you love Orthodox faith, you all of you, all of you. You love it. Westminster Confession of Faith, you've memorized the Shorter Catechism, you read your Bible every day, you pray, you family worship. Many of you, it's been decades and you've ever viewed pornography. You don't even watch Netflix, these, these wasters who, who you know, binge watch Netflix. You haven't even got, got a subscription to Netflix. You're just so, you know, and, and your life is in order, everything's just so, your home is tidy, everything's in, and you know, everything's, everything is in its little place. And what begins to happen is you begin to think, it's not that you'd ever deny that you need the grace of God. You just don't think it, you need the grace of God quite as much as the next guy. Hear somebody talking about how they can't stop watching pornography, and they just feel, I don't believe God could love me. And you think, I, I, I think I agree with you. I don't know how God could love you either. 
But you aren't amazed that God would love you. Remember John, the, the apostle, the disciple Jesus loved, and some commentators think John's being prideful. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not being prideful. It's a term of amazement. He says, don't call me John. He says, I just can't get over the fact that I was the one Jesus loved. Have you lost that amazement? Has the gospel put your life together so much that you've stopped being amazed in a, that God could love you? you're a poor, helpless sinner trusting Jesus. And so when you meet a transgendered teen who is, is confused at the bathroom door, you don't joke about them. But you think, you know, son, daughter, I'd be just like you. My heart is dark as your heart is dark. I need the same grace you need. Or a recovering drug addict you don't look at them and hold your nose and just, you know, disdain. I can't believe you, you took methamphetamines. No, you look at them and you say, you know, I, I'm a recovering sin addict. And it still claws at me, just like the, the old drug addiction sometimes claws at you. I know what that's like because sin claws at my soul every day. And I'm nothing but a poor, helpless sinner trusting Jesus. With a thousand other ways, silly arguments, silly fights, silly people, silly distractions, the devil moves the church away from the central focus of uniting around the rallying cry of the gospel. Maybe your, your, your problem is you say, I am that man, I'm, I'm the sinner. I, I, I can't believe the gospel can help me. I'm, I've fallen so many times into this sin or that sin, too much alcohol, too much porn, too much Netflix, whatever it is. And you think, I, I, I can't believe God loves me. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, press on toward the goal. You can't unite around the gospel if you've lost hope in the gospel yourself. The gospel is full and free and available for all, Paul says. But at the same time, Paul also says about many in the church, I have told you, and I tell you with tears, Paul says, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies of the gospel. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You can't pretend that you're glorying in the gospel if your belly is your God or your sexual organs are your God. No, the gospel's calling you away from these things. So the gospel comes after those um, who are full of themselves and empty of the gospel. And the gospel comes after those who are full of sin, empty of the gospel. It calls us all back to the gospel message. Here's the rallying cry. In all the moments of confusion, I and the elders, we will lift up the gospel of Christ, of God's free love, the blood atonement. In Him there is redemption, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace. A life worthy of the gospel consists in a church standing fast in gospel unity. Have you lost your love of the gospel? 
Have you ever trusted the gospel? Maybe you've been coming to the church for a long time, and you know the doctrine. You've come to the table. You've been baptized. You have your catechism down. But has God ever broken you? Has God ever brought you to a place where you need someone to redeem me? I need to be saved from myself and from my sins. Lord Jesus, save me. It's amazing how much of the church you can have and not have that. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, had all the church, all the teaching, all the doctrine, all the catechism, but he didn't have Christ in his soul. It was only whenever Paul could look at all of his religion, all of his Jewish heritage, and say, it's a big steaming pile of sugar-coated garbage, and I want Christ. That's nothing. He's everything. A life worthy of the gospel consists in standing fast in gospel unity. Secondly, a life worthy of the gospel consists in standing fast through gospel bravery. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When you stand on the gospel, when the church stands on the gospel, we stand toe-to-toe with the devil, and the devil will disgorge the legions of hell to attack us. The opponents on earth that will stand against us are just a reflection of the, the, the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You will fight tooth and nail against the church committed to the gospel. How can you stand against the world? When the federal government comes like Canada, they're like 10 steps ahead of America in every way, right? Or behind America, depending on the way you want to put it. But, you know, you see there, that's what the leftists really want. They want to put pastors in jail. They want to close down worship services. How can you stand without fear? Well, it's simple, but not easy. When you're focused on a gospel that saves you from the wrath of God, what need do you have to fear the wrath of men? When you're focused on a gospel that saves you from the wrath of God, what need you fear from the world and the wrath of men? I love Spurgeon. He says, there's nothing in the Bible to make any man fear who puts his trust in Jesus. Nothing in the Bible that I say. There's nothing in heaven. There's nothing on earth. There's nothing in hell that need make you fear if you trust Jesus. The past, you need not fear. It is forgiven. The present, you need not fear. It is provided for. The future, you need not fear. It's in, it's in the hand of the Lord Christ who rules over all things in heaven and on earth and has promised you only good. What if the world rises up against us, you say? Listen to Matthew Henry. We need not look upon those enemies with fear whom God looks upon with contempt. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
the fear of men is taken away immediately when we realize that the living God is amongst us. And we saw a glorious illustration of what it means to be fearless in the face of opponents this week in the Dead Theologian Society Wednesday night and the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was born in A.D. 69, which is just a year before the destruction of Jerusalem. He was the pastor in Smyrna, which you remember was the church, one of the only two faithful churches in Revelation that was spoken of. The other five were in risk of being excommunicated. Smyrna was one of the two that was praised by Jesus, only praised by Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Polycarp felt the business end of that prophecy, right? It was sharp and hot, like a night knife heated in the fires of hell. And he devoted himself to the gospel. He fought manfully against the errors of Martianism. Martian isn't from Mars. Martian is Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He was an early heretic who tore out the Old Testament and any quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And he had this Gnostic view of the gospel that believes that all that matters is your spirit, and the body is an important long, long story. And he didn't believe that Christ had a physical body because the body is bad, right? And all this stuff. And Polycarp fought against him. But it was in 155 AD when he was 86 years of age, he was arrested during a, a pagan feast in Smyrna and was dragged into the stadium. And you can find his accounts of his martyrdom in the early church fathers. Polycarp entered the stadium. As he did, a voice came from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. As he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp had been taken. When he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to your old age, man. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Away with the atheists, because the Romans called Christians atheists because we didn't believe in their pantheon, right? There are many gods. And Polycarp stands forward. He's, he's, full of, he's full of spit and vinegar, points at the crowd and says, uh, Away with the atheists! <laughs> Because they're the atheists, you understand, right? And then the proconsul urged him and said, Swear, I will set you at liberty, old man. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp said, Four score years and six I have served Jesus Christ, and he has done me no wrong. I will not blaspheme his name, my King and my Savior. The proconsul said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you unless you repent. Polycarp said, Call them. For we do not repent from things that are good in order to embrace things that are bad.
But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, saying you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. And Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment, reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry, sir? Bring forth what you will. The fire then was carried into effect with greater speed than with it was spoken. And Polycarp was consumed by the flames. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Now, the fires of the faggot, the burning place, are terrifying, but not so terrifying as the fires of hell. And when you're saved from the one, you need not fear the other. And Polycarp didn't. The church stands fast in gospel unity. She keeps the main thing, the main thing. And she stands fast through gospel bravery, courageous, keeping our mind focused on Christ and what He's done for us in heaven. And lastly, we need to stand fast. The worthy life consists in standing fast in gospel clarity with gospel clarity. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Why? How can you be so courageous? Because you remember why you're suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That's amazing. Why do I believe this morning? Why do some of you believe? because it has been granted to you by God. The God who said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion has had mercy on you and granted you to believe the gospel. That's the only thing that makes you different from those on their way to hell. And why, why do some of you not believe? At the moment, at least, it's not being granted to you. That should make you, you think, I'm so, I'm so smart. I'm smarter than my parents. I'm smarter than my brothers. I'm smarter than my friends. I don't believe the gospel. That, that may be true in your mind's eye, but in reality, the difference, the reason why you have not yet believed is that God hasn't granted it to you. If that doesn't make you stop and cry out, pass me not, O gentle Savior. I don't know what will. Have mercy upon yourself and cry out to Christ. Sometimes He passes people by to see if they'll call out to Him. He's passing you by this morning, maybe. Call out to Him. Don't pass me by. Have mercy. But faith is not the only gift, suffering is also a gift. It has been granted, and the word grant here is a gracious gift. It's a kind gift in the Greek. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. That suffering is a gift, a privilege, to suffer with Christ, to suffer for Christ. 
You need to remember that. You need something in your head. When you run, some of you are running. Um, you're runners, and I was a runner when I was younger. And you, when, in a race, when the pain gets so bad you want to stop, you need something up here. When you've got nothing down here to keep going. And one of the things I would remember when I ran was the pain I feel now is as nothing as the pain I will feel at the end of the race if I quit. Right? What you need to have up here when you're dragged before the councils, or just in school, people look at you as if you're crazy because you believe in Jesus. You're being rejected and despised, and you're suffering not just because the world hates you, but because God loves you, and God is giving you the privilege of suffering shame for the name of Christ. Don't walk away from that. Don't walk away from that. God has built a church to stand in gospel unity, through gospel bravery, and with gospel clarity, understanding why we suffer and even why we believe in the first place, right? That's where the church stands and walks worthily. Let me close here with this. George Boschke was a famous engineer. He he built the wall in Galveston, Texas, the seawall in 1904 to withstand hurricanes. Apparently, Galveston had been practically swept away like some of Florida by a horrendous hurricane or flood in the, the turn of the century. And, Gal, and George Boschke, he's famous, I can't remember his name, but Boschke, um, uh, I can't remember anyone's name, so don't worry, but Boschke uh, was tasked to build the wall. He built the wall, this engineer, genius. And some years later, he was away in another part of Texas working on a railroad, and a huge hurricane came, came, came ashore, a horrendous hurricane. And the uh, telegram came in, and the, and the rider took the telegram to Boschka, and, and he read it, and it said that the sea wall had been washed away by the hurricane. And Boschka said, that's a black lie. I built that wall to stand, he said. It stood. And he was right. The telegram was wrong. The wall had stood, and Galveston was saved from the hurricane. And Jesus Christ has built the church to stand, brothers and sisters. The world may stand against us. Hell may disgorge itself of every demon and come and attack the church Catholic across the world and the church local here in Greensboro. But I have confidence in you because I've got confidence in Christ. He has built the church to stand. I have built, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But we'll only stand as we keep the gospel the main thing, and we unite in gospel unity about around the gospel truth. That's, that's what I look for. You know, some of you are maybe longing to be elders and deacons in the church in years to come. Maybe you feel God's calling you. What I'm looking for. John Calvin said it best. It's the heart. Sorry, not Calvin. B.B. Warfield said it about Calvin. It's the heart that makes the theologian, not the head. And Warfield, who outread, outthought, and outwrote every man of his generation, said that about Calvin. And of course, Calvin was no slow coach. But it's the heart that makes the theologian. What I'm looking for in my own self, what I every examine myself, where's your joy? Where's your love of the gospel? Are you walking with Christ? 
right? It's on my prayer list every day, top of the list. As I look at you as brothers and sisters, as I do pastoral visits with my elders, as I look at men who step forward for examination, the head's got to be there. We've got to understand the gospel. But I want to know, do you feel the gospel in your heart? Do you love it? Because it's the heart that makes the theologian, not just the head. We've got to unite around gospel unity, the unity of the gospel. We've got to stand through gospel bravery. Only the gospel can give us the courage to stand against the forces of hell. And we stand with gospel clarity when we understand why we believe in the first place, the gracious gift of God, and why we suffer, because God has granted it to us to suffer, His kind gift to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Would you want to get to heaven and walk up with all the martyrs as they stand there, and Jesus leading them in, and to stand at the back and then look at you and say, hast thou no scar? You must not have traveled far. Thou hast no scar. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. May God give us grace to remember it and to embrace it as a badge of honor, not to seek it by being obnoxious, but to embrace it humbly as a gift from heaven when it comes. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You, Lord, for the gospel. And we pray, O God, that You would keep us focused as a church on the Word of God and the gospel of God as the central message that we exist to preach, as the central life that we exist to live, and the central work that we're called to do. In Christ's name, amen.